Hey everyone, welcome back to a kind of special edition of the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Khan, bone-tired knockriner. <laughs> as, as Corey is hinting at, we are coming to you live after Black literally hat. an hour after a Black Hat yeah. security conference ended here in good old Las Vegas. Um, so on this episode, uh, which we're hoping to pump out here pretty dang soon, by the time you listen to this, hopefully just the day after Black Hat, uh, we're going to go over a recap of some of the themes we saw in the conference, um, some of our favorite talks that we went to, and some of the main takeaways for that, yep. and uh, maybe a little bit of what we're hoping to look forward to in uh, DEF CON in the days to come. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and just get on started. Absolutely. So I guess the first thing that stood out to me when I was taking a look at the agenda for this conference and all the available talks was I noticed a very big theme across more than half of the discussions. Uh, as you may have guessed, uh, the majority of discussions, and I, I honestly, I'd go to say every single one included this theme at like mentioned at some point. Yeah. And that is artificial intelligence. Uh, it was, ML. I remember, crap, yeah. <laughs> Machine learning. But you know, they didn't use that term very often. Only the technical folks did. Yeah. Artificial intelligence. Which is honestly, so Makes I think sense. two or three years ago at Black Hat, talks were making fun of artificial intelligence and how much of like a marketing buzzword it was for cybersecurity companies and fear mongers out there. And now the whole dang conference was based on AI. Eventually you get enough data for the data scientists that AI works. Exactly. <laughs> And like it all even started, it kicked off at the very first talk of the conference, which was the keynote, uh, which was given by Azuria as yeah. her hacker name. Maria uh, Mark Stedter. Sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, pretty, uh, at least widely known if you are on Twitter or ugh, X or whatever it's called, yeah. security I researcher. Still can't call it that. Twitter. They mentioned she's like a 10 year DEF CON veteran at this point. Yeah, and she got a DEF CON, I'm sorry, Black, Black Hat, Hat does scholarships yep. too. And uh, she apparently, according to Jeff Moss, was a very earlier, also dark, he goes by Jeff Moss at Black Hat, Dark Tangent at DEF CON, uh, early scholarship winner for Black Hat. So she came on a scholarship and 10 years later, she's speaking the as stage, a keynote. As yeah. the opening keynote. Yeah. And her discussion was all about like the risks and uh, use potential uses of artificial intelligence. It was titled, I mean, there's a longer title, but Guardians uh, of AI, er, of the AI era. And so really the whole theme was as the security industry, we need to figure out how to make AI more secure. Yeah. You know? And she went over a few things that like, so uh, keynotes, by the way, at Black Hat, they tend to be high level. They're geared towards everyone in attendance. It's not where they go into the weeds of, you know, finding zero day or talking about zero day vulnerabilities and things. So this was in line with that. It was high level discussions on artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. I'll let you get to your points, but there are a few things that stood out to me. Um, so the first was she went over some potential examples of artificial intelligence. And, you know, we, I feel like we've talked about this every other episode on this yeah. podcast. So not a lot of this was new. The one that stood out to me was she was talking about project management with AI as a yeah. potential use, yep. where you'll still want humans to do some of like the, the nitty gritty, but she gave this hypothetical scenario of like a you know few years from now, where you've got a AI project manager, where you go to it and you say, hey, uh, here's some key requirements for this product or tool we want to develop. Uh, here's the teams you need to go work with. 
uh, go flesh this out with them and then come back to me with like a well-formulated plan of how to do this. And yep. the AI would, it's multimodal, so it would understand go. like how to parse communications with individuals, how to parse technical documentation, how to do research. It would take all of that and piece it together and then like set up meetings and understand both communications and shared screens. Yeah. And it would take all of that and bring back and output a report of how to accomplish this task or launch this product or whatever. Yeah, I love the project management example, but stepping back, you know, she talked about unimodal AI, which is kind of where we are now, mm -hmm. where you create an AI to do one specific thing well. Uh, and multimodal AI, which is what she used the project management example for, is something where the AI can do a number of different things together. And before she got into the project management, she talked about, you know, think about unimodal is you have a LLM and maybe it can transcribe a Zoom meeting. So it understands language and you start to get transcription. But then you also have image-based AI that's analyzing your body language as you're on this Zoom or whatever meeting. And you have audio-based AI that's analyzing the tone of your voice and stressors. So like in the future, a multimodal AI that, you know, instead of just transcribing your Zoom meeting, Intelligence agencies, for example, could get, you know, Corey was stressed and angry is during this Corey period. Is Corey a terrorist? We actually think that, you know, this is, he probably did something wrong because during, it, so I, I found the, even though we, I think we talk about AI a lot, but I don't think we've ever discussed unimodal versus multimodal, even though I think you and I knew about it. So it was interesting to see how AI is moving more to that multimodal and some of the potential issues that can happen with that. Yeah, and another thing she brought up was when it comes to securing AI, she drew a parallel to software as a service or SaaS from like 10 years ago, where it started out, we didn't really know how to secure cloud storage. We didn't know how to secure these applications, provide secure access. And we've been figuring that out over the last 10 years or so, and that's kind of where we're at with AI right now. We're at the start, and we need to figure out how to get to the decade from now, and hopefully not that long, of how to use these tools and protect them effectively, no matter where they are in use. Yep. Um, so, like overall, anything else that you took away from that one? I think she had some very high-level takeaways, which were essentially prepare for change, and it's evolving fast. But she really ended it by encouraging us, the security community, study AI, break it, and fix it. So if you haven't done deep dives into artificial intelligence, if you just have the high-level view, it's probably time to get some books, go to some trainings, yeah. and play around with it. And just consider all the attack vectors as well, too, as yeah. you mentioned. You know, with artificial intelligence, the way that they're training a lot of these is by scraping the internet and using yeah. that as a data source for the training data, which means the entirety of the internet is a potential attack vector. So yeah. when you're using these tools or developing them, keep that in mind. Absolutely. So overall, good like high-level talk. Um, while we had a booth, I'm wearing my WatchGuard booth shirt uh, currently still, uh, you and I, like our favorite part about Black Hat is going to some of the more in-depth discussions briefings. where the briefings, they've got a specific topic. They don't go as in the weeds as they do at DEF CON. DEF CON, you'll see like actual like source code for exploits and yeah. get really in the weeds. You see a little of that in Black Hat, yeah. but Black Hat briefings can either be high level or mid-level maybe. Yeah. yeah. So with that in mind, like I actually, my approach to Black Hat this year was different than every other year I've gone. Normally I try and go to like the nerdiest in the weeds talk for everything possible yeah. at Black Hat or DEF CON. This year I took a slightly different approach personally. Like yeah. I went to some more kind of high level, but applicable to 
our roles within WatchGuard or just my role or views within cybersecurity, um, or at least topics that I was like kind of interested in, understanding I wouldn't be able to see exploit code, but maybe I could learn something along the way. Yeah. And the first one I want to highlight that I thought was really cool uh, was titled Dismantling DDoS Lessons in Scaling. Uh, so this was put on by Cameron Schroeder, who's a, a prosecutor, hmm. um, and Elliot Peterson of the FBI. Um, so someone representing the, uh, the DOJ. Uh, I think she was out of uh, Southern California. And then Elliot representing the FBI was up in Anchorage. Oh, wow. So they mentioned this is a kind of funny little partnership we For have. For sure. <laughs> um, but so this talk was all about the FBI's efforts over the last uh, five years or so to try and dismantle DDoS as a service offer offerings. Yeah. Um, so they talked about how uh, this kind of all started back in December or Christmas of 2018, gotcha. where they did a takedown of some uh, DDoS stressors, as they're called. Yeah. So I guess backing up, DDoS, there's like three main types of DDoS as a service. You have booters and stressors, which they typically offer a service to their users to then find and bounce off of like reflective amplification attacks against vulnerable internet exposed services yep. dns being like an original yeah one, we've talked about a lot of weird one. udp protocols it's almost always udp that can yep. have amplification effect these ones they they tend to be around like 30 bucks a month or so for mm. access so relatively cheap there's a second level which are botnet botnet based services so think yeah. like mirai and licensing that out into a ddos tool those start from 300 to thousands of dollars a month i wonder why it seems like dns amplification can get bigger things but in that case you're reliant on public services that could go down whereas the botnet i assume if you build a big botnet you you own it and can do whatever you want with it exactly and then they you also could probably reflect off it if you put the right service on your victim exactly um then they also briefly discussed open proxy-based services, which are basically ways to kind of mask your activity as you're doing these DDoS attacks. Yeah. But they focused on booters and stressors, like the entry-level script kitty, for lack of a better word, type of DDoS as a service offering. And it all started in Christmas 2018 with the first takedown that the FBI did. So they timed this around Christmas because that's when these types of DDoS systems tend to be most active. They said that the majority of uh, targets tend to be around video games and gaming. Wow. And so Christmas time that is a really sense. popular sure. time to do it. We sometimes complain about our sites going down when we're gaming during Christmas. Yeah, uh, kids get new games, they want to go use Xbox Live, and that's a time for a DDoS service or someone using a service to go buy access to it and to go boot someone offline because they beat them at Call of Duty. Um, so in December of 2018, the FBI and the DOJ did a coordinated takedown where they seized 15 domains related to booter services and actually arrested four operators based in the United States on this one. Um, so they talked about how uh, it was a relatively small takedown. Three of those operators like pled guilty pretty quickly, took a plea deal. Yeah. The fourth one exercised their right to a trial uh, where they ended up losing and got <laughs> sent to prison for two years. Should have taken a deal. Exactly. <laughs> but so this was all 2018. And by the time the trial ended, it had stretched out into like 2020 or so. Um, but they said that after this happened, this was one of the first kind of attempts at dismantling this type of service. So a lot of academia, uh, so professors and research students, did a bunch of research to figure out, did it actually work? Yeah. So, you know, they took these services down. Did it actually have an effect on the... Or did new ones... We, we talk about botnets coming down. You take down and it's 
same is probably true of any exploit or, or service. Take down one stressor, there's a new script kitty, maybe. But it sounds, so this is know. actually that's exactly what they found. Like one of the key takeaways from a lot of the acad academia research was yes, they took down these services that were some of the more prolific ones. Yeah. But it didn't get rid of the ecosystem. Yeah. So the users of these services just went to another one, and that became the most prominent one from that point on. Gotcha. So it didn't really it caused a dip, but that dip Came ended back. up coming back up for DDoS activity and users of these services. So when it came around to time for round two of yeah. these takedowns, they specifically looked at what worked, what didn't work. They looked at this academia research and then used that to guide how they did the next round of takedowns, which oh. was in December of 2022. And Recent. so in this one, uh, they actually did a coordinated takedown of, I think it was like 80 something different domains at the same time. They only got a few arrests in this one, but their thought process was they're gonna cut off just about every single one that they can find. Yeah. And on top of that, they change the image that they put when they take down the domain. So you've all probably seen the, this domain has been seized by the FBI thing, yeah. and like blue background and stuff pasted on it. They said they intentionally switched it to a red background to make it more visceral. Yeah. And they included a link to some documentation they put up on the FBI's website, basically saying, this is what DDoS is, what stressors are, this is why it's illegal and why we will come after you. <laughs> is a way to like convince, you know, the 13-year-old kid that stole their parents' yeah. credit card that oh, mental this is warfare illegal. freak freak out some of the script kiddies doing the lower booter stressors yeah. or boot stressors. Yeah. And at the same time, they even bought Google ads uh, wow. for like if someone were to search like DDoS as a service or stress campaigner, the FBI ad campaign for <laughs> this, this is your brain on page. drugs. <laughs> this is you in jail after DDoSing. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, and so what they actually found was this worked out significantly better. So there was an immediate 20% reduction in volume and that volume stayed down as well too. So the people that ended up on, and they actually, they said they had, I think 10,000 different visits to that yeah. guidance, that news blog post they made. And so it seems to have actually had an effect. And on the cool. underground ecosystem, it caused an even bigger effect. So in part of their, uh, their what's the word? Uh, going to the court to go get permission to go take something down. They basically said- Subpoena. Subpoena, thank you, yeah. that's the word. Um, they mentioned that before they try and take one of these down, they actually test the tool to make sure it works. Yeah, because there's a lot, this is a criminal underground, so there's there's scammy services that sell you something that's not really what it is. Yeah, exactly. So they yeah. test to make sure that it actually does damages, it actually can cause an attack, because they don't care about taking down the scams. Yeah. Um, and what the effect of that was, for the ones that they didn't take down, it caused on the underground, they started seeing communications from people going, wait, does that mean this is a scam? Is yeah. it not actually working? And also they had people go, why didn't they take this one down? So they because got mistrust in the customer. Like I, even if you had a working one, if you weren't taken down, suddenly you have a bunch of people that are like, wait a second, yeah. are you a scam? So they like <laughs> sowed mistrust and they also uh -huh. had people rat out legitimate ones going, that's this awesome. one works, why was yeah, it not why taken was it? down? Yeah, that's Which awesome. they then hit Monitor next. the forum. <laughs> so overall, like this was one of those high level talks. It wasn't like any groundbreaking research. Oh, it's cool. But it was cool seeing their thought process of how the FBI and the DOJ learned from that first takedown and then yeah. made the second one more effective. And honestly, I think with where all these threat actors are, we, while we have technical ways to attribute and find them, it really is the legal tricks and going after the money. Like This is the type of stuff that really will end up stopping the criminals. It's, it I think everyone in the Fed government and other governments says, 
you know, we know they're going to pop up. We know sometimes you can hide behind countries and stuff, but we're just going to make it costly for them to do business. And that is, if, if you take away their profit, it no longer becomes worthwhile to do the criminal enterprise. Exactly. So that was the first one I thought was interesting. Like, how about you? That's what was cool. one good one from you? Well, one I did on day two, I think we might have seen the news. I can't remember. We didn't talk about it on the podcast, but we had seen the story come out in the news. It was called EDR, which equals erase data remotely by cooking an unforgettable bite signature dish. Is that what EDR stands for? <laughs> no. EDR, t- in, in our community, it stands for endpoint detection and response. But as you might be able to guess, they these guys were finding a way to leverage EDR against victims. So really the, the, the takeaway of this is one of the things EDRs can do is if they find a really malicious file, and EDRs probably have different severities of this is suspicious, this is low, this is medium, but if they're signatures for well-known bad shit, Beep. Pardon your whatever. Well-known bad stuff. You can say shit. Yeah, we drink. (laughs) So if there's a well-known bad thing, sometimes it's an automated delete action. So they had done a lot of research how if you had local access to a machine that had EDR, how you might be able to use, you know, placing something that might have a, like injecting somehow a signature in a little legitimate thing to get it deleted. But this talk was trying to figure out the questions of, what if you could delete critical files remotely over the internet without authentication on a fully patched system that has strong security controls like EDR? And long story short, they figured out how to do that. And basically, what they did is they started with uh, Windows Defender, which has EDR capabilities. They wanted to search for a, a, a byte pattern that they knew would trigger the most severe alert on like a, a signature. EDR. Yeah, a signature. And so basically, uh, they did downloaded 36,000 virus total files that uh, Microsoft Defender triggered on. But they ended up finding that Mimikatz, they could create a, what they did is once they had the signature, they wanted to find the smallest pattern of it. So they did some cool work of, you know, Basically, if they could tell the the pattern they're looking for was, or, or the whole file was this long, uh, let's say it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, they, they f- would subtract letters from that one at a time in the programmatic thing, subtract A first, oh, the signature still triggers, or, or doesn't trigger once you subtract A, and then subtract the last letter, and they would find the smallest signature they could do. So now they have a signature that they know if they can put it somewhere, get it somewhere, it might trigger Defender, and Defender's default would be delete that file. How do you try to get that signature in something? The first thing they did is try to put it in a document, and for whatever reason, it didn't trigger in a document. They played with executables too, but eventually they found log files. So what they did is they started with a web server. And one of the things that when you go to a web server, it checks user agent. So they would embed that signature in the user agent, which would show up in the IIS logs, because this user agent connected, 
guess what? It deleted the entire IIS log file. <laughs> so you okay. could delete your web server log file with it pretty bad. It's a good way to clean up your tracks. Yeah, they did it backwards where they put it in the actual, uh, uh, for the client. Let's say you're trying to target a client. So if you have a malicious web server, you get someone to it. They could put it in a different header and then start delete the cookies on your system. Not as scary, but without typing, they, they did all kinds of things. And some of the cool things were Splunk. Uh -oh. They found a way. Splunk is a, a sim that gets logs from everything. So they were able to attack FTP servers by putting a SIG in a username, and that would kill those logs. They could kill email logs in Thunderbird. They killed the Splunk logs. But what if you could delete an entire production database? <laughs> so at the end of the day, they got Maria DB, SQL, um, you know, MySQL DB and other databases where they were able to go to a form, a normal form, you know, you have a web application and you write data to a database, and if they did any sort of, you know, often they were also looking for signatures that had not many special characters mm -hmm. besides being short, which sometimes you could actually put a few special characters in, into a database yeah. without worrying about some of the the, the sanitization, sanitization that it does. Yep. So they were able to enti delete entire MySQL databases just by putting these signatures in the forum. Holy hell. So this was a zero day at the time. I, I think there's some fixes for it. They also talked about a EDR Acer. So think Eraser, EDR Eraser tool that they released publicly. But I thought it was a, a, a novel concept. You know, it, like you suggested, it's more for just brute force killing data and or hiding your tracks. Uh, not so much with things like, uh, you know, stealing files or getting remote access, mm -hmm. but it was pretty interesting. That is super interesting. They did freeze machines too, like they attacked VMware and with the uh, logs, uh, they were able to create file directories with this signature over and over. If you have a guest machine and you can write create directories, they could create the signature over and over, and it would be eventually be detected so much that the vendor, if it were running on the hypervisor, would delete the VMDK file, <laughs> which is the actual. So you could no longer it, the guest system is dead and you can't reboot right. it anymore. Oh, that's so amazing. all kinds of crazy ways that deleting files could DOS a system. Yeah, wow, that is actually pretty dang cool. I yeah. missed that one to go to, uh, actually, I think the one I'm about to chat about here. At the same time I did mine. Yeah, yeah. but wow, that's awesome. Uh, horrifying, but really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next one I wanted to highlight is something we've actually talked about a few times in various contexts uh, mm. on this podcast. And it involves, first off, the National Cybersecurity Strategy from the US White House. Mm. Uh, so if you remember, it was earlier this year, uh, White House released their national cybersecurity strategy, a whole bunch of different pillars of basically the guiding principles of how they want to improve cybersecurity across the nation in both the public and private sector. Pillar 3.3 that we've talked a lot about yes. there is shifting the burden and the liability, as they explicitly call it in there, for securing software and products from you, the consumer, to us, the vendor, which I don't think I'm allowed to speak for WatchGuard on this, but you and I fundamentally agree with this. Yes, essentially. Um, so this talk, though, was called Unsafe at Any Speed, CISA's Plans to Foster the Tech Indo uh, Ecosystem Security. Yeah. And it was put on by Bob Lord and Jack Cable, both of CISA, um, who were, I believe, two of the primary authors on another piece that we talked about back in June of this year, which was when CISA released their kind of white paper on secure by default and secure by design for product manufacturers. So 
Uh, we have already kind of talked about that previously, but at a high level, it's, this is CISA's uh, implementation requirement from the White House as a part of this pillar to design this documentation to guide yeah. us as vendors on how to meet this pillar yeah. and kind of start the discussion going. If I had add one thing to it, when we did talk about this White House executive order or the strategy, the cybersecurity strategy, we both liked all five pillars, but we my thing was the devil's in the details. How are they going to execute in 10 years? It sounds like they're releasing details. So at the very least, they're giving guides and starting to get go that way. Yeah, so at this point, it's CISA giving guidance. It, yeah. It's not required, Quite, it's not yeah. regulated. It is, yeah. hey, you know, this is coming. It something. will eventually be regulated. They're trying to push for, like, actual liability laws through Congress. Yeah. But for now, like, here's how to make sure you're not caught with your pants down as a vendor when yeah. those actually come through. And so the discussion, it drew parallels to other industries. Mm -hmm. So they pointed at the automobile industry. Um, and the, re the title comes from one of Ralph Nader's old books, Unsafe at Any Speed, about yeah. the auto industry and safety concerns around it. They pointed out, like, they gave it a, an example of a spe special model of a car that I can't even remember the name of, but how this car was involved in more single vehicle incidents than any other car out there. Single vehicle meaning you'd be driving down the road and suddenly the car just like flips over. And, yeah, something yeah. bad happened. So the reality, what was happening is if you corner too hard in this car, it would flip and roll yeah, and potentially kind of like a jeep. Occupant. There's a jeep that was top heavy once. Yeah. I think. So the manufacturer recognized this, and in some like uh, like Sears catalog equivalent things, you could go and buy this like yeah. strengthening tension bar to put in the suspension that would help strengthen it up and potentially, not guaranteed, potentially help That's you. Bull crap, though, right? Having to go buy out. It's like having to buy seat belts for your car because so they don't come with it. It's that, yeah. So it's yeah. exactly the things they pointed out were this is you as the consumer of this had to know that this additional paid feature exists. Yeah. Go out and buy it with your own money. Pay to have someone go install it, and it might help you. No yeah. guarantee. And so this is kind of And by at. the way, it's unsafe without it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is where we're at with some products and software out it's there where true. you have yeah. to know a hardening guide exists. You have to go find it. You have to use your resources to implement Do it. it. Yeah. And it may not still work. There might be other vulnerabilities that could cause you to be impacted. Yep. They pointed to issues with uh, data availability within cybersecurity. So in the US at least, every single automobile accident or incident Go, uh, that involves a fatality goes into the FARS system, hmm. uh, the Fatality uh, Analysis Reporting System. Okay. Uh, there's documentation the police have to fill out anytime an automobile accident involves a fatality, yeah. and it allows them to get statistics about yeah. how, when, and why so that So if there's occurred. an unknown issue in a certain automotive vendor, that might help figure it out. Exactly. Show statistics it that we need to look here. around like information sharing and fatal automobile uh, incidents makes sense we don't have that in cybersecurity. Yeah. we don't have a Newer central market. repository we've got the verizon data breach investigations report yeah. we've got reports by other like unit 42 and other threat researchers we have the WatchGuard internet security report yeah. they're all like ad hoc by us vendors and not a easy to parse and search central yeah. repository cv you can at least look up the vulnerabilities in a vendor but it's not really as you know you can't get any data for how what one CV if it's exploited a lot or a big deal? Yeah, and the like one of the main issues with these reports, and I have to admit, like ours has this too, is that we glamorize the bad guy, like what they're doing successfully, glamorize what the victim did wrong, uh, but we don't talk about like what vendors and uh, software manufacturers do to create that environment where that incident yeah, actually yeah, yeah. occurred, um, which 
it makes sense. So this whole talk was about like addressing that specific problem. Like yeah. how do we get better visibility and metrics across the industry? Yeah. Um, and how do we have manufacturers and vendors uh, release software that is secure by design and secure by Be default? accountable for it. Yeah, so the talk was, it was walking through their uh, white paper that they had previously released that we already covered on this. But at a high level, like pointing out things like memory safe languages and secure hardware foundations, parameterized queries, like specific examples of what, what vendors should be looking at, as well as like high level like concepts. So like, what do you mean by secure by default? So secure configs out of the box, manufacturer responsibility for insecure deployments, MFA by default is a specific requirement for anything with authentication. Um, and like so and so forth like that. But at the end, it was all about shifting the balance yeah. in accordance with that pillar to the manufacturer from you as the consumer trying to set this up. Which again, I'm sure not every company wants to take legal liability for it, but we, we do kind of agree with. We're a maker of a security product and it's up to us to make sure it's secure for our customers in the world. So, yeah, so yeah. at the end of the day, it was CISA talking about like their role in this ecosystem is to help foster this growth and yeah. this shift. They want to help collect and uh, distribute data around cybersecurity incidents too, and then drive adoption of these secure by design and secure by default best practices. Yeah. They talked about, uh, they actually have a workshop tomorrow, I guess today by the time you're watching this at DEF CON, yeah. uh, in the policy village that you and oh, I cool. think are both gonna try, yeah, or Saturday that we're both gonna try and attend, yeah. where it's an initial review of some guidance for vendors on how to talk about and prove Grouping that you're secure security. by de design and default. So. Overall, like another high-level talk, but yeah. super interesting, relevant to us and what we are trying to accomplish within WatchGuard and what yeah. hopefully every other vendor out there is trying to accomplish within their companies too. By the way, this isn't the talk I'm going to share, but just to add to that, I, I think there was a strong showing from the government in pushing for the White House security. We, we're not going to talk about the, the fireside chat, which was the keynote on day two, but Kemba Walden, if you want to look her up, she's the new acting national cybersecurity director. And she did kind of a, a quick fireside chat with uh, Jay Healy, where they, they talked about the White House strategy and these pillars a lot. So yeah. that was good too. Uh, so next one for me, if we're moving on to that, I saw something called Mirage, cyber deception against autonomous cyber attacks. And the autonomous, by the way, is more AI focus. Uh, this was from Michael Cormetis, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and Ron Alford, uh, and Dean Lawrence. Only two were there, though. But anyways, this is a MITRE team, so MITRE, very cool folks. And they more do thought experiments. This wasn't something that is quite happening in the wild yet, although they're seeing signs of it, but they want to get ready for it. So really, they talked about autonomous cyber adversaries. And you see some autonomous things, like if there's a botnet, there's something called a mass scan where you just automate it, automatically scan IP space for known exploits. So mm -hmm. that to some sense is automated. But once that finds the exploit, I guess sometimes it will try to exploit it. Well, the Mirai botnet would. It was yeah, yeah. automated for detecting yeah. and then exploiting. And but then threat actors would have to make decisions and do the actual exfiltration yeah. and do stuff. So they imagine this uh, autonomous cyber adversary is that they go through a sense, plan, and execute phase, which is maybe the scanning thing that they're doing now. But then they go through automated actions and autonomous decision-making. So that means maybe once they scan, the autonomous action might be the exploit, but the autonomous decision-making is figuring out what they've 
taking over and figuring out what the next step is, what they can exploit and what they can do. And there's probably going to be packages of machine learning. Like today we have exploit kits of a list of exploits botnets can do, but in the future there might be machine malicious machine learning algorithms that can do different autonomous actions like that the terminator yeah pretty much take the human out of the loop for not just the exploit cycle but all the way through exfiltration of data and figuring out what your victim is doing lateral movement and figuring out what kind of data you want to get from them great yeah, so that is the imagined, and the, obviously that gives speed, scale, and flexibility to the adversary. So really their thought experiment is how do you defend against that? Because once you have these autonomous adversaries, like it brings down, even to exfiltration, down to seconds, maybe even milliseconds, with the only limit being the, how long it takes to exfiltrate however much data you're doing. So even if you have systems that can catch this, I mean, can analytics respond? You know, even if you have something like a SIM, it takes a while for an endpoint agent to share a, a suspicious action and for your SIM to pick it up. So modern security controls may not be able to keep up with this asymmetric uh, autonomous adversary. So what do you do about that? Run and hide. Unplug yes. everything. No. Their, their thought was deception, which we, we have talked about deception technologies. Deception technologies are where you expect bad guys to, to hack you. And you not only you have not only a canary in a coal mine, where you have this purposely luring canary that if there's suddenly gas, aka an attack, the canary dies, and that's a sign that you're being attacked. But when you see you're being attacked, you can place fake systems. You can make the attacker go to other places and, and see a fake file database where they steal files that aren't worthwhile. And you take all their time and they don't get to the real crown jewels. And you learn what they're doing along the way too. A absolutely. So that's what deception is in general today. But this deception was different. This is talking about if you have, say, automated planning and search, how if someone is able to send attacks that, that send automated planning and uh, you know, search, what do you do? Or, or if they have a classifier, if they have a machine learning algorithm that's starting to do something. Well, if you, you know about machine learning, one of the things, the first thing you want to do when you're making a machine learning algorithm is reduce the state space. You need to have very specific features that you're looking for. So if, if when these autonomous attacks happen, what if you could make artificial state space for it? you? You make it so the machine learning has so much, so many inputs that you're kind of confusing it, making it harder. Uh, what if it's trying to, you know, figure out how to laterally move? Uh, you can, you know, make a lot of fake things for it to look at. Mm -hmm. So I won't go into all the detail, but they talked about some existing engines. Uh, uh, Soda, Chimera, lots of deception engines exist. And MITRE has this free open source automated platform called Caldera. And they basically went into details how they set up this thought experiment. Because these autonomous attacks don't really exist, they created some very simple ones. They put it in Cal, they, they put a lot of cool stuff in Caldera, saw how it did, and had some decent results. So without going into all the technical detail, it was just a neat idea of creating automated deception systems that are more targeted towards confusing and making it harder for AI. You know, rather than just creating file systems for manual hackers, this was making it harder, just, that is super cool. It was interesting, like, and it's it's all an experimental phase, but it was interesting for sure. Damn.
Uh, well, so the last one, I guess, for time, there were quite a few others I went to, some better than others, uh, yeah. but this last one was another really cool one. Um, so the talk was called Lessons Learned from the KASAT Cyber Attack. Oh, I wanted to go to this one. Response, Mitigation, and Information Sharing. Yeah. Uh, so it was put on by Mark Kololako, uh, the VP and CISO at uh, Good Viasat. Good job with that name. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Christina Walter, who works at the NSA. Damn. Yeah. So uh, she works specifically like with defense industrial base, so like yeah. Viasat. And, and we the, remember Viasat from Ukraine. So this discussion yeah. was all about uh, the attack at the start of the Ukraine war against Viasat um, yeah. that we I, we talked about on the podcast back yeah. in 2021, and really just a discussion of what happened and what they learned from it, like what That's their key awesome. takeaways were. So this one's actually paired up with a deep dive technical talk at DEF CON tomorrow. Oh, cool. Got to see that one. Where they go into, like, literally what happened, what are the exploits, the code, like, how do they get through, what were their TTPs. But this one was more of, like, a high level, like, from a CISO or, like, my position, like, what did we learn because of this incident? And first off, like, kudos to Viasat. Like, the uh, the CISO, uh, Mark, even went up there and he goes, you know... If you told me that I'd be up here at Def Con or Black Hat talking about something, I'd be like, no way. Yeah. If you told me I'd be up here with someone from the NSA, I'd be like, whoa, double I, no way. something really <laughs> bad happened. Really yeah. bad day in my life. Um, so anyway, so the first one ever <laughs> talked about this KASAT. That's a, Relate. <laughs> a single satellite that's up above Europe, geosynchronous orbit, provides uh, broadband access and uh, satellite TV to customers and uh, consumer base as well as government agencies within Europe and parts of the Middle East as well as Ukraine specifically yeah. um, they talked about some of the architecture of how this works basically you've got po- at the point of presence at the customer environment you know they've got their network it ultimately plugs into a modem that modem goes to a hardware satellite dish beams up through RF to the satellite which then comes down to a giant dish, actually one of 10 around a certain region. Wow. That gets piped off to a data center. Huh. Uh, ultimately, that data center does some like, uh, you know, authorization and uh-huh. verifies the modems allowed, uh, does some management services, but then ultimately pipes out their internet traffic to the internet. Yeah. Uh, they break up like the management control plane for these from like the data plane. Uh, they've got that segmentation. That's cool. They also segment some of their users. They've got like two main buckets of users and then a third bucket for government agencies. Huh. Those two users, because this is based in Europe, are actually managed by a third party European company over there. Huh. The government one is managed by Viasat themselves based in the United States. Uh-huh. Um, so they Segmented. Talked- Yeah, exactly. So they talked about this attack that occurred um, back in 2021 and basically walked through like hour by hour what happened. Um, So it all started where, um, so I guess first off, into this this data center, they have remote access through VPN in order for their administrators and these third-party administrators to come in and manage the network without having to physically go on site. You know, not outside the realm of like, uh, insanity to have a VPN aggregator for that. Yeah. But they noticed, like, on day zero, this was around like eight o'clock at night or so, uh, there were a whole bunch of failed authentications to this VPN aggregator. 23 attempts uh, around like, like five or six o'clock in the, uh, the evening on this first day. Uh, but then an hour later, there was one successful authentication. Uh, but they didn't do anything. So they logged in, kept the session open. 
but just sat there for two hours with an active session, but not actually doing anything. Smart, probably a, a not an evasion technique in a way. Same with the sandbox, if you, yeah, I, yeah. So, uh, anyways, after an hour later, then or two hours later, uh, they then connected to a management server in mm. this management network using a different set of credentials. So they accessed the VPN with one set. Access so the management server with a different set there. Yep. They obviously knew. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they might need multiple. Um, so for three to four hours on that server, um, they basically rooted around, figured out where they were at. Uh, they gained access to the network operations server on there, which is mostly used for like health diagnostics for the, the modems that are deployed out there. Um, they also have found an FTP server that's designed for delivering firmware to these devices too. Uh, but they just basically did a bunch of recon first. Yeah. Then they accessed the FTP server that's used for the software updates and staged a toolkit huh. uh, and a, a series of scripts on that server to ultimately get pushed out as a part of a normal firmware upgrade process wow. to all of these modems that are out there. Um, the toolkit, it basically does a little bit of um, enumeration and discovery within the modems network. So. Like once this gets loaded on the, the modem, it'll attempt to figure out what's Private going on numbers. in the network, exfiltrate yeah. that, and then it's got a wiper where it basically goes in and clears the flash in the modem and then attempts to reboot it. So it comes up bricked at that point. Wow. Um, <laughs> so they deployed, the, then they started this deployment, took about 45 minutes to try and get all of the ones they could, um, and then started attempting to reboot them. This is when Viasat realized something was going on because in their metrics suddenly both their traffic volume and the Drops. number of connected modems just like crater. Yeah, yeah. Now it was a big drop, uh, but it, a long tail of other ones where it turns out the reboot command didn't always work. Ah. But there was enough disruption that like just a user troubleshooting would go try and reboot it on their own and then- And then they're break. popped. Yeah, and there was an additional attack uh, that I'll talk about in a second that caused enough network disruption that ultimately caused users to go reboot their devices. Oh no. Um, so they lost about 45,000 modems in oh total during this attack, um, during that initial drop and then quite a few more later. Um, at this point, the uh, CISO called up uh, their, they had already established this relationship with the NSA. So I guess back That's in, good. The NSA set up this uh, security sharing, intelligence sharing community with the yeah. defense industrial base. Yeah. So they already had basically a phone number to call for the NSA. CISO calls up and goes, hey, I think something's going Can on. Can we pause there for Because we've said this about FBI relationships too. I, I, mean, I know some people out there are worried about government, but I think we said we've gone to the FBI CISO Academy, we've worked with NSA, GCHQ. You want to trust relationship with whatever your government's agency is before this happened. Having that number and the person to call probably helped via SAD. Exactly. And if you haven't made that relationship, even if you find the number and call them, you, you might not trust them yet and they might not know you. So make that relationship before the crap hits the fan. Yeah. And so with the FBI, that's mostly something you have to go proactively Absolutely. Do. This was uh, the NSA they created. They called uh, it outreach cybersecurity collaboration center. Is it was it mostly critical? Who do they pick to be so part of it? This one specifically was the defense industrial base. Gotcha. Um, so people involved in manufacturing or uh, involved in say satellite communications for yeah. uh, defense, uh, government, uh, government gotcha. military and stuff, whatever. 
And the and fact so, that they had a government uh, segmented via set yep. probably. And cool. so this was, it's specifically designed to quickly declassify and share information with key partners directly from the NSA, that's which if awesome. you're looking for cyber threat intelligence. Yeah, that's a good place to get it. There is no better source, on it, <laughs> I guarantee. Um, so they called up the NSA and they were able to like hand off technical artifacts from the attack that was going on to the NSA. Wow. The NSA was able to run it to their experts. They mentioned experts in, uh, I don't know if she meant to say this, but experts in both uh, attacking and defending satellites. <laughs> and so they're able to, and NSA came back and were able to quickly say, here's mitigations you should immediately do in order to address some of this. Uh-huh. As part of this, uh, the CISO pulled the plug on their entire uh, management plane at one point, which up until here, they weren't 100% certain it was an attack. Like they were still trying to troubleshoot and figure out what was going on. But it was enough that they said, you know, this is critical. Yank the plug on this avenue that they're getting in, which he said ticked off a lot of their engineering team because they're still trying to fix a potential issue. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, isolating at this point was the right move. Uh, they even put in some mitigations during the time, which the adversaries were quickly able to circumvent because they had a very intimate knowledge of this network and the wow. activity on it. So it's possible they had gained prior access to it as well, too. Um, as a part of this, uh, they actually launched a attack using DHCP from the modems back to the management devices itself. So specifically, uh, it wasn't they. So first off, there was a high volume of DHCP requests, which yeah. caused some network disruption. But they were also abusing the protocol, and I think it was like option sixty or something, yeah. um, in order to ultimately cause. Uh, downtime and cause these servers to eject themselves huh. out of the management network. Is Option 60 something that just remember makes exactly time out was, and, but and they refresh DHCP more? how it handled this in order to gain code execution on the servers, That's basically, awesome. and eject them out. Um, when Fiasat put mitigations in place, they were able to find ways around some of those mitigations as well, too, and deny yeah. these servers joining back up into the network as well, too. Yeah. So it was pretty dang nuts as they were walking through this. And the, the three like main takeaways that he highlighted, um, so first off, incident response is not, uh, it, you don't want it to be a neglected muscle group within your organization. Absolutely. So they had already tested some of this communication with the NSA, so they already knew how to do that, but the actual incident response itself, like they had never done a tabletop exercise with their distributors and their partners. They mentioned like their distributors at this time, their customers just thought there was something funky going on. So they're saying, yeah. oh, just go reboot it. You know, turn it off and on again. And that, of course, costs more. <laughs> exactly. There are partners that are out there. So the par- uh, organization they partner with in Europe that manages all of this, yeah. they really didn't have any idea what was going on. Not they're also separated by eight hours of time zone and a language barrier, too, in some cases. Yeah. So that was causing issues as well. The security team was having trouble getting logs they needed. Like hmm. these were targeting devices based out of Europe, yeah. so they didn't actually have a modem that was being affected to try and troubleshoot what was going that makes on. Makes sense. Yeah. So he said, like, first takeaway is make sure you've got tested tabletop exercises for scenarios like this, yeah. working with not just in your organization but any key stakeholder you have to work with outside of it. That makes sense. Second one was information sharing is important, but it can be tricky. So Viasat, like. They have contacts in governments. Yeah, they had a hard line to the NSA. Exactly. So they've got their customers asking them what the heck's going on. They've got governments and military going, what the heck's going on? They've got a wind farm out in uh, Germany that's asking what the heck's going Going on. on. And from their perspective, it is tough to manage all of that communication and transparency and like in the moment when it is happening. 
So what they learned from it was they managed their customers and their commercial agreements, and then they leaned on the NSA to manage the other, like both federal U.S. government agencies and uh, foreign government agencies as well, too. Yeah. So because of this, the NSA already, they know how to do this. They call it like the Cyber 911 program, where they act as the communication arm to every other government agency. Yeah. Let the company handle their customers if they're able to as well, too. I feel like we had a little bit of, we, we inadvertently did that with the case we worked on with the FBI and that we handled informing our customers, but the FBI had relationships with ISPs and ShadowServe, yep. and they relayed in very you know, private and good disclosure ways of, of letting other government-friendly allies know about affected TTPs and stuff, <laughs> and also some IOCs, IOAs, and, and reported things to ShadowServe so that it could get out to a wider community. And so the similar. last main one, yeah. yeah, exactly. The last main one was attack sophistication required for an attack is correlated to the, the hygiene of your network itself. Yeah. So this attack, there was a lot of different things that threat actors were doing. Some of it was in not well-defended yeah. parts, and some of it were in very, very well-defended well parts. parts. And they noticed that, like as you might suspect, they had difficulty in the well-defended parts to successfully attack it, and they had free reign in the house for uh, unwell-defended ones. So make sure you preemptively protect your organization's networks. And if you do the effort to make it more difficult for an attack, it will actually It will be more back. difficult. Yeah. Roadblocks help. So this All right, road cool. bumps help. Road bumps help. I'm looking forward <laughs> to the technical one at DEF CON, and yeah. we'll probably talk about that one on our DEF CON recap a little bit later, That'd be too. be fun. So anyways. Cool. I, I cannot wait to see it. My last one's it's not it's not super technical, but it's an interesting new threat hacker. It was called Mustache. Must, I want to say mustachioed, because that's better, but it was called Mustached Bouncer. Uh, attacker, I'm sorry, yeah, attacker in the middle powered surveillance from the Belarus ISPs. And to really, to give it too short, it was mostly a talk on a new th a nation state threat actor or alleged nation state threat actor that we didn't know about. And it, it, this was given by Mathea Fau, I believe he's French, he's an ESET senior malware researcher. So it actually went into a lot of technical detail on the malware. But to be on, honest, other than a few things like the C2 I'll get into, the malware is sophisticated but not novel and new, it's similar to stuff. And it was more interesting to them because everyone talks about China attacks, Russia attacks, certain nation states, there's not much on what's happening in Belarus. So long story short, basically, ESET eventually got a sample of, of a piece of malware. Uh, they created a timeline. They, uh, he started investigating the sample. Pretty much, you know, the Ukraine invasion happened February 24th, 2022. And by October of 2022, he had found a sample he started researching. And in researching this, he found out that there was this piece of malware in this campaign that's been operating for 10 years. I believe it's Whoa. since, uh, you know, 2012, 2014 was when he saw it in virus total once they found it. And it's been happening only in Belarus, targeting foreign diplomats visiting Belarus. Interesting. So he started doing a lot of research in this. And the first thing he figured out is what is initial access? How are they infecting these foreign diplomats when they get into Belarus? And it turned out it was an attacker in the middle. And uh, basically they figured, uh, they theorized that if I'm in Belarus, I'm trying to go after a diplomat, how do I get in the middle of their traffic? Two different ways 
that are common. One, the gateway. Maybe there's a gateway device if your target's a certain place. If you own that gateway, you can attack her in the middle. The other way is the ISP. If you're a lawful state and you have a government that has lawful taps on ISPs, ISPs can start to what are do saying attack Bell her in the middle. Belarus as a country might have the ability to do that? And long story short, this seems like Belarus. Uh, so at the end of the day, by the way, they think it is ISP. They can't rule out routers, but because there are domain names that are actual domain names for other companies that should be owned that are being redirected to different IPs. They feel like it's ISP level, mm -hmm. the amount of control, lots of other things. They feel very strongly that it was ISP based attacker in the middle, which means it might be lawful in Belarus. Uh, by the way, the foreign actors they're going after, uh, they couldn't give names of these for privacy and stuff, but it seems to be diplomats from the EU, Africa, Middle East, India. Oh, I'm sure uh, those are very worthy yeah, yeah, yeah. getting targeted. They, they, there's a lot about, there's different malware that happened, disco, nightclub, I don't think, it, and, and winter vivern. Okay. I don't think it's worth going into all these different uh, stages of it, but I will say some of the interesting points was the C2. For command and control, different piece of malware used some kind of novel techniques. One was SMTP and IMAP. Uh, they used DNS tunneling, which is not that uh, novel, but they also used SMB as a command and control channel, which is kind of weird, and outgoing to the internet SMB. And, you know, the attacker in the middle thing did Adobe Flash. Some of it wasn't super complex. I mean, once they can take over a domain, or once they have control of your domains because they have attacker in the middle, they can show any site they want. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it required user interaction, like they would put up a fake government site that says you have a virus. Some of it was really stupid crap. Like, you have a virus, download this to fix it. And Good thing when, no one falls for that ever. When you ran it, it, it wasn't even a fancy GUI like some of the fake AV. It was like a command prompt. It was literally a batch script that ran a command prompt that said scanning for viruses, <laughs> dot, 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 no viruses found. Uh, and in the background, it was also downloading PowerShell. So it wasn't even good fake antivirus. But so that's why I don't want to get into the details of all the malware. There was some interesting stuff there, uh, but the command and controls were interesting. But the big takeaway is it, it seems like the Belarus government might be able to, you know, have lawful in their country taps on ISPs and they're targeting foreign diplomats there. There was Russian language too. Obviously, Belarus and Russia are connected. There's Russian language in uh, the in the actual malware as well. And it was very similar to Turla, a very old thing, if you know Turla. The defense in depth was one, deny outgoing SMB. That seems obvious, but very few people egress filter. And uh, hopefully no one allows incoming SMB. That would be dumb as crap. But if you don't egress filter, you're probably allowing everything out. And there's almost no times you want SMB to be going out from your network. I guess most you, likely not. I you, honestly, you could, there's no legitimate scenario where yeah, you wouldn't just use something. Else. Some crazy network admin might have a SMB server at home on a Linux machine, but don't do it. Another simple piece of advice is VPN everything. And that, that was to, because if you have a, a ISP level attacker in the middle, that's your only, that's your only option, right? Yeah. I mean, because the ISP can see all your traffic 
HTTPS may not exactly help there, but a VPN could help. And the, the rest is kind of boring, but it was update your software. We know that some of the, the malware use some pretty uh, old vulnerabilities and things like that. But I mostly just found it interesting to hear about a Belarusian actor called Mustached Bouncer. I wonder what Microsoft, does Microsoft have a storm name for Belarus yet? I don't think they're big enough in the adversary. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yet. at this point, they probably get whatever Russia's name is because they're in a puppet state. Isn't that so. where exactly where uh, the one guy that has been helping Russia attack Ukraine now yes. went to after he tried to overthrow the Russian Lukashenko, government? Right? Yeah, and yeah, there you go. <laughs> Anyways, I don't Fun think stuff. very highly of their government. Their citizens, I'm sure, are fine. Yes, but, uh, absolutely. Man. Anyways, interesting talk. Yeah. And I mean, you and I, we both went to quite a few others. Yeah. Like some of the key ones, like there was a really cool one on compromising LLMs, large language model. AIs. Yeah, I went to that one as well. Did and you go to that? I did. Yeah. I, did I didn't even see you. Yeah. I waved at you and you just looked at me and kept I staring. had no clue. <laughs> uh, that one was really interesting. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that one later. It started with things you know, but it actually got very cool and yeah. the new Bing techniques and the chat GPT. Yeah, exactly. it was interesting. Uh, there's some other ones like um, like MITRE gave a talk about developing red teaming tools that they then give to, uh, both use in their MITRE tests and then give to organizations to yeah. test their EDR and and endpoint protection. Uh, there was some academic research on whether publishing bug bounty reports publicly helps yeah, went or hinders findings. Uh, then there was actually GitHub's director of security strategy giving a kind of like project management lessons learned from GitHub flipping the switch and saying all developers need to have multi-factor authentication and like what they was that the one that. where he said I had to turn on multi-factor for, for hundreds of thousands of millions, of millions. Yeah. yeah exactly so anyways some other cool ones but yeah. Black Hat is wrapped up now which yep. means like we put the party pants on tomorrow and yeah. we get to go to DEF CON where's our alcohol we didn't bring beers this time <laughs> that's for the DEF CON podcast that is for the DEF CON podcast but I'm looking forward to that one I think It'll I mentioned fun. looking forward to getting in the weeds with that KA sat one yeah and uh, some of the other villages along the villages too. are really I mean I love the talks at DEF CON too but the villages have some cool crap yeah so anyways that was cool from Black Hat this year. Yeah. Uh, you, I don't think Black they don't release their talks publicly. No, you DEF have to Con pay a lot of money for video. Watch the DefCon videos; they're yeah. they're freeish. Did attend Black Hat, but didn't see any of these talks. I saw on one of their uh, boards that they're gonna have them available for paid attendees from August sixteenth through September eighteenth. I believe. Yeah. So you'll have a chance to watch them. Recommend hitting up. And by the way, saw. even the ones we saw, it's like a fraction. We probably saw one tenth of the presentations yeah, out yeah. there. Easily less than that. Yeah, and yeah. we were trying to split them up. We didn't in intentionally go to the same one all the time. Yep. And anyways, mission accomplished. Yeah. And uh, on to the next one, I guess. Yeah, and cheers. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Only thumbs up, though. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, and if you like Elon Musk, you can reach out to us yeah. on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Yeah. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Are you still listening, Paula? <laughs> Inside joke, sorry. Cool. Uh, and record.